Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 2 this morning, the first four verses. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God with you, we've, we've got one uh, in the pew rack in front of you. If you open that copy of Scripture to page 1001, you will be right where we're about to read this morning. Well, for the last two weeks, the author of this book, this letter, this sermon in letter form, has arrested our attention and fixed our attention on the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, uh, the eternal King, now exalted and seated at his right hand, the one who has made purification for us as our high priest. And let me assure you that this has been and is no merely academic exercise. All of those seven somewhat complicated Old Testament quotes last week are no mere theoretical nerd work for us on Sundays. No, everything's at stake in the things that we have heard. Here's why. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. And we begin with something that is difficult for us to imagine and with one thing that we must do. We begin with verse 1 in chapter 2. Drifting. Actually, not so hard to imagine if you've been on a boat before or been out to sea. Drifting is an experience of being on the water. It's simply a movement away from one place to another. Typically, imperceivable or almost imperceivable unless you're paying close attention. The word here is as well used for something slipping away or for a ring slipping off a finger. It's not only used in with sort of nautical imagery or experience of a boat drifting. And I can relate to the whole ring thing. Uh, We were married, Christy and I, only a couple months, and I got a call, no text, because back then texting was really something else. And we hadn't really started that, but I got a phone call, and uh, she said, do you know where your ring is? And I did not know where my ring was. And she found it in the trash. And uh, she didn't think that I put it there on purpose, but it, it warranted a phone call. And so I asked her to go ahead and take it out of the trash. And I would, go, I would put it on, and I wasn't sure how that happened um, until a couple months later when I was washing my hands in the restroom with some soap, 
and got a paper towel and then looked down and there's the ring sitting on the paper towel. The ring doesn't slide off my finger so easily anymore. But that's exactly what happened. Uh, not paying attention to my ring, paying attention to whatever's on my mind or washing my hands and there, there it went. Uh, almost imperceivable movement away from something, a slipping away, a drifting uh, by invisible forces, when you're on a boat at least, uh, the wind above the water, it doesn't even have to be that windy. A little bit of wind can move the boat. Or a current beneath the surface of the water can push or pull the boat in one direction or another. Slowly, so that with the passage of time, you lose your vantage point from which you are able to focus on the place you were, a particular reference point. This imagery of drifting is given to us by the author here at the head of this warning, and it is very important. It's, it refers to a movement away from something, and in the context, it makes up our first warning in the book of Hebrews. There are five warnings, warning passages in the book of Hebrews, of which this is the first warning. You'll remember the very end of the book, we've gone to take a look where he summarizes his work as an exhortation. He's exhorting us to do something. He's arresting our attention with a warning uh, five times, and it's that warning on repeat that gives us his agenda. He is concerned, as we've said, that we would not fall away from Christ. Well, this is the first of those warnings, and the warnings as they go seem to escalate in their consequences and in the stakes and in the severity, and I would put to you, and we'll explore this as we work through the book, they are not five different warnings of five different problems, but they are to be heard, if you will, in surround sound together. And actually, some of the puzzles or theological problems that are raised by one warning, once you understand that they go together, are often resolved by hearing them in concert. Remember, this book was delivered as an oration, as a kind of written sermon, and so as we dip now into the first warning, there are some things that came before. And as we get to the second warning, weeks down the road, this first warning will be in the background. And like any good sermon, there's a movement like this toward the end of the book. This imagery of drifting is given to us as a first warning. And the first in a series that, that escalates to a kind of culmination or climax of these warnings and so, not a surprise, we begin with an image that involves a subtle problem, that of drifting. It's a movement away, it's a warning for us, and it represents a real danger, a real danger for any hearer, a real danger that for us, when we think of our relationship with Christ, may well be difficult to imagine an imperceivable move away from him because it's his personal. Uh, by invisible forces, the winds about us culturally 
or the currents beneath the surface of our own hearts can pull us away from him so that our vantage point over time as we look up, it is difficult to focus or maybe even to see him at its worst, even to remember him. And it's possible to be in the room and to drift in this way, although you're much safer in the room. Much safer in the room. I've moved several times, uh, too many times in my life. If you ask me where I'm from, I'm just going to start giving you the list. Sometimes I bump into somebody who is from one place or another that I've lived, and as it is, I can't pick. Born in one place, uh, learned to ride a bike in another, uh, became a Christian in another, was discipled and encountered the book of Romans in another, met my wife in another, uh, the list goes on. Uh, something I've learned as I move from place to another that while it's very difficult to imagine losing track of somebody that you've spent every day with at work or at school, no, it absolutely happens. It happens. You'll move away and Unless you deliberately keep in good touch, make the effort to be together, to talk together, to listen, to pay attention to that person, you'll think of them less and they'll think of you less. And over time, you, you drift apart and you learn as we get older to embrace a degree of that. We can't be close with everyone we might have ever known. But it is a sad thing to think about when you're moving away. And so you work to keep some friends, and we have worked to keep some friends in, in some places. But consider that that can happen with you and your Lord. The author here is writing to those who showed up for church on Sunday. And there's a sense of urgency in his pen, in his voice even, that you not drift so he doesn't say, hey, pay attention. He says, therefore, having established the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And how can we keep from drifting? Well, I, I, I'm holding out to you as a sermon title, Do Not Drift Away. That's actually not the command. That's what happens if you don't pay attention. The command in the text is a, an exhortation. Positively, pay much more close attention to what we have heard. To observations, this is fairly simple. Um, this is not a long list of things that must be done. This is not a 12-step program. This, is, this has to do with your attention, not even your actions, what you do. It, it has to do with where your, your mind and your heart is. And it's possible to do things on the outside and, and to be somewhere else, isn't it? Pay much closer attention to what, to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. A fairly simple command. But not easy. That's why they have to be told to do so. If you've ever ridden a motorcycle, you'll know that you need to pay attention. 
And if you can't pay attention, you need to get off the motorcycle. Uh, too many things can go wrong on the road. You can think this person has seen you, and they don't, and they move, and you had, be very, you had better be ready to act in a moment. And if you miss the moment, you could get hit. Uh, riding at dusk, riding on certain turns, uh, it's not for everybody. Using a power saw, doing a bit of that in the garage over the last few weeks, and sometimes there will be kids around, and when it gets out I know where the kids are or they're out of the garage. And if I did more of that and had a shop, there would be particular rules. Uh, the use of a gun comes with certain rules that are, that are needed. And, and, and the folks who use these things the right way are jealous to guard the, the handling and the attention, their attention around the, the tool or on the bike or, or with the gun in hand, because the stakes are really, really high. If you're not paying attention, someone could get cut, someone could get shot, someone could get, someone could get hit. Our attention is very important, and everything is at stake in it. And it's not easy to pay attention, which is why he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's so easy to pay attention to other things and people and concerns. The cares of this world and the desires for other things choke out the word. And the cares of this world and the desires for other things are always about us and they come from within us. The cares of this world are about us and the desires for other things come from within us and those two together will choke out, choke out the word. This is a simple command and we can be thankful for that. It has a nice way of focusing our attention this morning. But it is not easy, and that's why we need a whole sermon on it, a whole paragraph on it, and it's why he didn't stop at verse 2 at that point. From here, from verse 2 through verse 4, we have a single sentence now. And he offers what I believe are two reasons why paying attention is so important that should strengthen our resolve to give our full attention to the message, the message of Christ. Two reasons or two, two motivations. You hear a friend gets hit on his motorcycle. You hear somebody has an injury at work and it has a way of, of fixing your attention on those things you kind of knew about and that you knew about, but you're all the more serious about it. Just naturally, just naturally it has a way of helping you out. So, two reasons in the rest of the sermon here that will strengthen our resolve to fix our attention on, on the message. One from the Old Testament, and one we could say from the New. The first one, in verses 2b, it would be, friends, Reckless of us, reckless of us to neglect so great a salvation. It would be reckless of us to neglect so great a salvation. For, since the message declared by angels, for, uh, introduces a ground or a reason, that's why I'm calling these reasons here in one sentence, for, 
introduces a basis or a ground, and here a comparison between the message declared by angels and our great salvation. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What about this message delivered, declared by, by angels? What, what is that? Well, it was that message delivered to Moses at Sinai after the Lord had delivered his people from Egyptian slavery to his mountain in order that they would no longer serve Pharaoh as slaves, but serve him in worship. And here, their gracious God who has heard their cries and answered their prayers and come to them and delivered them of amazing redeeming grace is now speaking a word to them about how they are to relate with him and what life under his gracious and glorious and good and merciful rule ought to be like. And he's provided a way within that covenant for them to be with him through the tabernacle and for them to deal with their sins through the sacrifices He speaks to them through the prophet he gave them in Moses. And one day there are indications he will even give them a human king to reign over them. All exciting things and and, and message of his grace given through angels, declared by angels there at the mountain. God's covenant with his people. This was a, a reliable message. It proved to be reliable. It was not all they would need. He is not dissing the angels here. This is one reason I have not taken in the first chapter. You'll remember we mentioned we have not taken a negative view of what the readers were doing with angels. Although there was some, some little too much speculation or the possibility of angel worship. We've said we don't think it was that kind of a unique situational concern. Rather, he is, he is showing how Christ is greater than the angels in order to show that his message in salvation is greater than the one the angels proclaimed in order here to show you that to deny that salvation was one thing and to deny this salvation is all the greater a tragedy, a danger. The stakes are higher as Christ is higher than the angels. His salvation is greater than the one they announced. And so leaving off Christ is that much more dangerous than leaving off the message given through angels. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and what about it here? That every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You see, this covenant given at Sinai had blessings and cursings, covenant stipulations. And if Israel was to keep the word of God and and obey him from faith, then she would have life in the land and all would be so well. Uh, But if she was to disobey and harden her heart against her Lord in unbelief, uh, then she would not be in the land as Adam was not in the garden when he turned in unbelief, so his people would be exiled and, well, The word the angels gave proved to be reliable because that's exactly what happened. And the story of our Old Testament is the story of Israel 
given so much grace and the word of God and these promises and this covenant, choosing against her Lord. And so she was put out of the land. That's a word from the angels that proved to be reliable, that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. But for the people of Israel, there was the prospect of turning and repenting and coming back. And the prophets spoke to Israel a word of grace and a promise that if she turned, she would be received. And so she would come back. But then she was exiled. The message declared by angels proved reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Those punishments and covenant stipulations under the old covenant given at Sinai were just. And he uses the language of retribution. There was discipline involved, and it was to be restorative, and that God's purpose was that they would walk with him, not worship idols in the land, but where she ended up outside the land was simply where she wanted to be, given who she was worshiping. And so she would learn and hopefully come back. Nevertheless, it was a just retribution, as the exile of Adam from the garden was a just retribution. This message from angels was rejected by Israel, and therefore she was exiled. Well, that's a bit on the message delivered by exiles. Then he continues, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that is our salvation. And what do we know of that? Well, that's what we've been spending time in the last few weeks. This is that salvation through Christ the Son who is the full and final revelation of God, the radiance of the glory of God. God's glory had touched down in a cloud of smoke on the tent. And all the sacrifices had to be in place and done just right. And the priests had to keep obedience just right in order to represent the people. And God appeared. And how marvelous was that? But it was just that. The people could observe it from a distance. And a high priest could go into the presence of God once, once a year. Oh, we weren't dwelling with God. And Israel was not dwelling with God in a close and intimate way as Adam and Eve had in the garden. But the salvation that we've been offered through Christ, where Christ has come, God's glory manifest in the God-man, the Son of God incarnate, the Word of God made flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one had ever seen God, but he reveals God. Well, that's great salvation. Uh, He's the enthroned and eternal king. So last week, that, that string of texts, which seemed a little confusing on first read, are a string of texts whose theme is the enthronement of God's king. God promised salvation and blessing to the nations through Abraham and his seed, his children, How would that happen? Well, later in the Bible, we learn that it will be through a son of David. David, Israel's king, a son of David, would be the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. Even God would give all the nations as an inheritance to his human king, a son of David. 
And Jesus is that son of David, but he doesn't sit on a mere earthly throne, but he sits on his heavenly throne. And now as we preach the gospel among the nations, that is the father giving the nations to the son. And he has given us as as an inheritance to the son. He is enthroned. And he is seated at the father's right hand because he's finished his work of bringing about purification for sins. For he is the perfect priest that has represented us, and he is the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself up for us. Wonder of wonders, that's how God would do it? Who would have known? And it makes perfect sense when you look back on the Old Testament and you connect these dots, as the author does for us, but it is a wonder what the Lord has done for us, that that through a human, God has accomplished what he promised to accomplish, but he has done it himself through his son, who is God eternal. And his son is now seated, enthroned on high, oh, very high, over his enemies. And he's on an eternal throne. And he's there because he's made purification for sins. And the subject of the purification that he made for sins as our high priest, that's going to get the most attention in the rest of this book. The book is arguably about that. And all that it means for us. This is that great salvation we've received. Well, well, consider the contrast here. If, 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 in, if in rejecting the old covenant message through angels, that earthly message about an earthly tent, the author of Hebrews will argue exactly this way, earthly and heavenly. An earthly message and an earthly tent with that first part that represents this age, the promises of a human king, a merely human king. It wasn't all clear all that that would mean way down the road. If rejecting that with those stipulations meant to be cursed and sent out of the land, well, this salvation is everything that one was looking forward to. This salvation with this With this greater forgiveness, this salvation with a much greater tent, uh, God's heavenly abode where Jesus goes as our high priest and takes us with him and we can draw near to God. If you reject this, there's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other way to God but Christ. There's no other way into God's presence. There's no other way to forgiveness of sins. So he's not setting these against each other, one bad, one good. The message of the angels was provisional. It was partial. It was looking forward. It was a kind of a promise. Well, this is the fulfillment of that. And you have to reject that earthly message with earthly fulfillment in the immediate term. If that that received a just retribution, well, you can't reject this message and have any hope. There is no hope for you in me apart from this great salvation. But if you're alive, it's on offer to you. And it's on offer to you this morning. And the message to all of us who are here to hear it is to stay with it and to pay much more careful attention to it lest we drift away from it. Well, what is this judgment? To sharpen the picture a little bit. This just retribution, how shall we escape? Escape what? Escape rewards? 
escape from receiving uh, a greater level of joy and access to God or, or, or reward in, in heaven. I don't think that's it. I'm certain that it's not. Is this escape some punishment that Christians experience before they get into the presence of God, a kind of purgatory thing or, or a view that Christians can suffer judgment in heaven. I've heard that before. Well, what is this that we would not escape? He's writing to a church of Christians that showed up to hear the word of God, right? Well, very clearly as you put these passages together, he's talking about future, eternal, what we'd say eschatological, end times, forever judgment. The earthly message concerned one of earthly exile from the land, but that was all just a parable, a model, a a little version of the real thing, the substance of salvation in Christ by way of contrast with eternal judgment. How shall we escape eternal judgment if we neglect so great a salvation. And that neglect there isn't merely forget it for a moment, but, but the, the not paying attention is because we're paying attention to something or someone else, setting our trust somewhere, somewhere else. Now, there's a question we want to ask at this moment, which I want to acknowledge that I will likely not spend a lot of time on in this series through Hebrews. It is not a bad question for Christians to ask. But it is the wrong question to ask in the book of Hebrews. And the question is, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? You and I should care about that question. Uh, Jesus says no sheep can be snatched out of his hand. The New Testament teaches that, that the Lord has elected us from the foundation of the world and He doesn't lose any of his. Uh, Is his grip good or not? Is his word good or not? And we have other chapters in the Bible and passages which seem to address this very thing. In 1 John, uh, it speaks of those who have gone out from us in order that it would be known that they were not of us. In other words, it can appear that someone is of us And when they go out and they reject Christ and leave him, it is then apparent that they were never actually of us. We have passages that deal with this very very question. And I want to legitimize the question. And depending on your spiritual moment, maybe you need to explore that question theologically, personally. Uh, And over time, in our teaching around here and in the preaching... Um, you know, a whole theology is filled out. It's not a bad question. It's the wrong question for this book. And part of the way that we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture in the preaching and in all of our living and thinking is by submitting ourselves to the questions that the Bible is giving us to ask. So the question we want to ask Is not, can we lose our salvation as if this passage is here to rock us on that specific narrow question. The question, a better question to ask, truer to what 
the author's trying to do, the Holy Spirit is doing with this warning, is to ask, is it possible for me to go on from here in unbelief and unbelieving sin and arrive safely on the shore of heaven? And the answer to that question is no. You cannot leave off from here, turn from Christ in unbelief and unbelieving persistent sin and make it safely to him. And if it's not clear from this passage, that will become clear from the others. And in a class on sanctification or on assurance in general or the very good books we have on this topic, which you're welcome to email me for or any of our pastors for, um, you're welcome to ask how these fit with this, how this fits with this and with this. And I'll do a bit of that in our series, but not a lot. I want to keep the questions and the agenda of this book and this author in the driver's seat. I want us to be rocked in the way that he means to rock us, which is one reason I've acknowledged that question, so that we could, for our purposes in this preaching, so that we could bracket the question for the time being. Not a bad question, but it's the wrong question. And the wrong question, here's what's at stake here, the wrong question threatens to pull us away from the point and the purpose of the passage. It's possible, even in your Bible reading, be careful of this, you're reading the Bible, you think, ooh, now that's interesting. And maybe you've come across a good question the text has provoked. It's okay to pursue that question. But be careful, and you're talking about Scripture with friends, and you're reading the Bible on your own, or even listening to a sermon, that you don't make the question that popped into your mind, legitimate as it is, the main thing God has for you on that day, and not actually hear the text on its own terms. You see, this passage is not causing us to look back to a prior instance of sincere confession of faith, which in doing so may cause us to lower our head in doubt. This passage and his purpose is actually to cause us to look up to our Lord Christ in faith, And to look onward in faith with him. He's not trying to slow us down, confuse us, distress us. He's trying to compel us and propel us and push us onward to faith and faithfulness. That's what this is supposed to do. And I'm putting to you now in this little parenthesis that the wrong question, if you let it bug you, and if you gnaw on it, could divert you from hearing the passage properly at all. So let us hear the passage for the point that it's trying to make, and in line with the purpose that the author is trying to serve. This passage is not trying to steal our hope. It is trying to steer our hope safely home. But that's not all he has to say. There's a second reason here. Remember, it's one sentence. 
it is in the first place reckless to neglect so great a salvation. In the second place, it is foolish to leave off such a, such a certain message. It's foolish to leave off such a certain message. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, I stared at this and wondered why it was here, which is like half my job, staring at ancient texts and wondering what they're doing on the page. Um, why is this here? And at first I thought, it seems like he's trying to convince them. There's a pile on here. It's legal, legal language. Attested to. It's declared first by the Lord. That's Jesus. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and the forgiveness of sins. And it was attested to us by those who heard. These original readers weren't first, weren't, weren't first generation Christians. Second generation Christians. It, it came to them through those who heard, they didn't actually hear Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard, attested. It's courtroom language. Uh, and one more. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed. You have all members of the Trinity here. You have Jesus, Lord Jesus. You have the Father inspiring and bearing witness through the Holy Spirit and, and the miracles and wonders and signs that were done in that, that first century era to confirm the message which they had heard about if they hadn't witnessed some of those. It seems like he's trying to convince them. But on second thought, don't they already know this? He's not trying to talk them into faith. He's, he's trying to strengthen their faith and have them pay much closer attention, but if I started to speak to you this way, I, I wouldn't be trying to convince you that the word of God is true and the message of the gospel is true, and yet this is what he seems to be doing. They surely agree. In the first century, uh, that first century church would have been scrupulous and fussy about the testimony of Jesus handed down. Uh, not just anything was going to pass, Jesus said, well, yeah, did he or not? And it had to be attested, and you can feel it on the page here, a stubbornness about what we commit ourselves to confessing Jesus has said. And if there were signs and wonders, he's writing this. He's certainly not letting them know that. It seems as well that it's uncontestable. And from our vantage point, if we doubt the veracity of the word and the truthfulness of it, it's helpful to observe here that when this author writes to this audience, apparently this isn't in question. This ancient text referring to signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit uh, was written without any more defense of that. He doesn't say, go talk to this person or that. We all, we all just know. I don't think he's writing to convince them of these things. Is he writing to assure them of the truthfulness of God's Word? I thought that might be closer and it's a possibility. They certainly need that assurance. They've just heard a stark warning. And they've just heard a consequence of, of leaving off attention on Christ. But this is an exhortation section 
of the book and not an exposition section like chapters one, like chapter one, where he was expounding and explaining the glories of Christ. Well, that certainly was assuring, would lift their eyes to Jesus on his throne. They need that and they have gotten it and they will get plenty more of that. So it didn't seem crucial to me that they needed this assurance concerning the testimony at this specific point. Besides the fact that we're dealing with one sentence and it would seem like an, a gear crunch going from fifth to third or, or a major change in tone and purpose even halfway through what is a unified sentence with a unified purpose. So then what is, what is he doing here with this last portion? Well, I think he's trying rhetorically and is a good preacher to persuade them, to motivate them to pay much care, more careful attention to Christ, certainly by reminding them of what they know and rehearsing these things. But by saying, in effect, it would be foolish to leave off Christ. The former message proved to be reliable. The message you have been given is reliable. You know it's reliable. It's just driving it home. You know it's reliable. The Lord spoke these things. You heard it from those who heard. It's been attested to you. This is airtight. You know all about the signs and the wonders. We may be able to identify with these second generation Christians. They were having to, to hang on, having not had that on the ground, firsthand, in person experience with Jesus like maybe some of their parents had. No, but he's saying, you know it's true. And you see, it's possible to drift even as those who in a moment confess that it's true and show up to hear the word of God preached. And so this text has us on our toes. He has arrested our attention and he has told us to pay much more careful attention. And so we can pray as a church, we do, we do just that. So friends, be good hearers of the word. Now, not just hearers only, but doers, right? But remember, this is a different book. Be, in the first place, good hearers. Your fundamental responsibility as a Christian, a Christ follower, could boil down to this, paying attention to what you have heard. Everything flows from that. Everything flows from the message of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son for sinners. Pay attention. Be a good hearer. When you're on the phone with Verizon to talk about your bill and you have a complaint, a grievance, something you're confused about, you will rattle on and on and hope they understand you and they will repeat back to you precisely what they understand you to have said before they move on, because for their sake, there's a bottom line at stake, an unsatisfied customer, and so you are to be listened to, understood, and responded to accordingly. Much more is at stake in the hearing of the Word of God on the Lord's day. So maybe for you, that means taking notes. Maybe for you, and I welcome this, it means not taking notes. And just listening. This is a listening experience. 
It may mean different things for different people, but in the first place, it means hearing. And a primary place at which to do that is on the Lord's Day, right here. So be expository listeners. I'm an expository preacher, and we have those around here who preach. You are engaged in preaching every Sunday on the other side, listening to the word, listening for the voice of God through the word preached. And as we work through books like Leviticus or Genesis years ago, listen to the stories. And as you read through the Bible on your own, read the stories and why. They may feel even more distant than this passage in the book of Hebrews. But remember, this passage in Hebrews refers to the Old Testament. For since the message delivered by angels all the way back there at Sinai after the exodus, before their disobedience and the exile, that's pretty much everything. That proved to be reliable. Yes, it was. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Yes, I remember that. Well, how shall we escape? And there it is. You cash in your whole Old Testament and all the stories you've ever read for this exhortation. Then how shall we escape if we neglect this much, much greater salvation? Read your Bible. Hear the Bible well. Cultivate your attention span. Be a good hearer and beware of subtle winds and currents. The world these days is not so subtle. Uh, It's their own fault. They have moved very quickly in the impressing the logic of an anti-Christian, anti-God understanding of the created world into reality, Uh, so that there is a denial of men and women and all the rest, and of marriage and all the rest, but the pace at which all this is happening is arresting, and for those who have been alive and awake long enough, uh, it has the appearance of utter foolishness. Nevertheless, how many are being swept away, even Christians? So while it doesn't seem so subtle to me, It is experienced as subtle winds and currents to others. And maybe it's even the winds above the water are giving occasion for the currents under the surface of the water in our own hearts to draw us away from him. The fundamental work of the Christian is to pay attention to the message that we have heard. Now that message involves more than merely faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. For it then transforms our whole life as we live and walk with him in a life of faith. But it begins there and it involves nothing less than that. So cultivate your attention span. Let's show up on the Lord's day to listen well to the word of God. Recognizing that with each Lord's day as we listen to each other sing and as we we hear the word preached. That we are being kept by him and with him. So let us give him our full attention, even as he intends to arrest it and to keep it. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for words of warning. And we confess the truth that the faith that saves us is faith that perseveres so that those who are yours would hear a warning and heed.
And you, you call out to us with a word of warning, Father, because you love us like a father hollering at his children running into a busy street. You intend not to steal our hope, but to steer it to protect us and to guide us safely home. And so we pray for help as we continue in this series week by week. And each day that we live and walk with you at home, that we would pay much more close attention to what we have heard than we have paid. And that we would get better with every day and week at paying attention. Not getting used to the things that we have heard or not moving on from them, but moving with them and through them ever homeward. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.